And we're going to pick up at verse 27. And we're going to read to um, verse 30 something, 4, 3, read 33, all right. So let's gonna read 27 to 33. I came to the end of a page, that's why I was kind of stymied, because I thought, well, I don't have to go to the next page. No, I don't. Please stand with me as we honor God's word and read together. If you, if you need a Bible, if you don't have a Bible and you need one, there's some on the back tables. You could borrow one from us and uh, you could follow along that way. It's even the correct translation. <laughs> Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, And be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And then he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Ever-living God, we praise you and glorify you. We thank you for this day of worship and thanksgiving. Thank you for one another. Thank you, Lord, for our dedication and commitment to seeking your word and to understanding your word and to listening to your word as the Spirit of God exhales, he breathes, he inspires the same words, the same thoughts that he inspired into the writer, he inspired into copyists and translators and he preserved the word so that we have a sure word as Peter said a sure word of God comes to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and today we look to the word and ask for you to breathe again inspire us again we might obey you, we might honor you, we might love you, we might love one another. We praise you, Lord, for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has come from heaven, revealed himself to us. In our turn, in our day, in our generation, recognize that we become a part of those he prayed for there 
in John 17 when he talked about there are others who are not here with me now that I'm also praying for them, that they will believe because of the words that those here will share. And we thank you, Father, that you're still multiplying and growing your kingdom till finally every one of your sheep is rescued. May we be ambassadors for Christ in that task, Father. Today, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. This is a very similar series of texts here in this portion of the Gospel of Mark that we saw early on as Jesus concentrated his first efforts, his first uh, declaration of, the, of his Gospel and throughout the Jewish regions, Rio Capernaum, and we see this almost exclusive Jewish content from standpoint, not content, but a Jewish audience that he spoke to. And then, without much of a word, not an explanation, Mark then just simply shifts gears and says, Jesus went off to Sidon and Tyre first, and then Sidon. If you have any Bible maps in the back of your good study Bible, or you can look there and you see this picture of the Holy Land of the time of Jesus, you'll see the Tyre and Sidon were those coastal, coastal regions, and they are Gentile country, almost exclusively Gentiles. And we ask ourselves a couple of simple questions. Well, what does Jesus look like? Looks like a Jew, because he was a Jew. Still is a Jew. Well, come on, George. Okay, who's preaching here today? <laughs> Let's just all calm down, okay? This is rhetorical. Even if I ask you a question, don't answer it, okay? <laughs> I'm starting to feel something, too, before that. <laughs> Jesus is a Jew, and he's got 12 guys with him, and they're Jews, and Jews, even Jewish people, during this time frame, particularly, even if they weren't Orthodox Jews, they still knew the difference between a Jew and a Gentile. And it was a harsh difference. And it was a harsh distance difference for Jewish people toward Gentiles, and it was a harsh distance between, for, for Gentiles toward Jews. Highly contentious. But yet Jesus goes into this region, and not only does he preach in Tyre and preach in Sidon, but then he takes a 250-mile detour, wandering around all of the land, all throughout Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, all the way down through the Decapolis. This is all on the western side. That's eastern whatever, on the side of the Sea of Galilee, opposite, opposite Capernaum. Look at your own map. Uh, I, I always think of north, south, east, and west as in the U.S. Is it behind me? There you go. There it is, right there. Okay, good. 
And he then goes down to the Decapolis, even to a point where he locates or finds a city that today we have no way even knowing where it is, other than somewhere in a Gentile area in the Decapolis. And then he did miracles there and preached there, and he we saw marvelous things take place among Gentiles. And he had an audience with him. He first of all had his disciples with him. He had the Gentile audience, I don't mean that, but he has disciples with him. And from our understanding of, of his calling of these men, some of these men were, were Jewish, but they were workmen. They were, not, they were not really orthodox. They didn't attend synagogue all the time. They were fishermen, many of them, common fishermen. And some of them, as we see through the synoptic gospels, some of them were more orthodox. We see people that were highly orthodox, in fact. But yet, there's a characteristic about all these disciples that was similar, and that is they're kind of like these these rebels, open to people speaking to them about new things. All of them, from first to last. And Jesus wasn't the first person in many of their cases to speak to them about something new and unusual and haven't heard before, a new, a new kind of context and a new kind of doctrine. Where do they think they heard that? They heard about some guy that just came out of the wilderness one day. He just he's, he looks like he's just the strangest person you can imagine. And he's preaching that a Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. Someone's following him that's going to come. And for the person who had any idea what the scriptures are about, Malachi just pops out in your brain that Malachi prophesied the last prophet, arguably the last prophet, Zephaniah. Um, perhaps one of the late prophets also, um, before these 400 years of absolute spiritual darkness and revelation just ceased during those 400 years before the time of Jesus. And John the Baptist comes out and he starts preaching that someone's coming after him. And who, was, who were the ones that were there listening to him? We find in John's Gospel that at least four of the disciples were disciples of John the Baptist. And he had to actually tell them, go follow him. John had up to 300 men that were, you know, it's just an, it's an estimate, but in, in, in history, the tradition is that he had many numbers of people, John's disciples. You always see that wherever you hear about disciples of John, it's disciples. And they followed Jesus. Some of them specifically followed him because he called them. And some of them followed them because they wanted to be near that kind of a context. And things were happening in Israel. Jesus was questioning back the leaders, the Pharisees, and the, later the teachers of the law, the priests even. He's talking back to them. And he wasn't talking back around the traditions of the elders. He was talking about the Word of God. He's staying right in the center column of the Mishnah. Talking about the Hebrew Torah, excuse me, the Torah. Not the notes around it, not the notes around the notes, but right straight from the Torah. And he was even rebuking those who were in authority for following the traditions of people, traditions of the elders versus the Word of God. And we've looked at all those things together. This, is, this is, should refresh your mind a bit. And now these persons who, no question in my mind, after he fed 5,000 people, probably 15,000 at least, Jewish people, he fed these people, 
if there's nothing else going on in these guys' minds, now we're really next to the guy who's going to bring everything to a whole new level. And for some reason, at least Mark, followed, the other Gospels follow this same chronology to some extent, but Mark especially just sees Jesus head to Tyre, head to Sidon, head over to Caesarea Philippi. You watching? All the way down into the Decapolis, past Bethsaida, and even going to this hidden place that this person, it's not hidden then, but it was, it's not known to us now. And then before he leaves, instead of going right straight back to Capernaum, he goes back up into Caesarea Philippi. And we see this marking, this, this directional quote that's in his gospel, and it's a word, on the way. As before, he uses this phrase, on the way. It's used like seven times already in the Gospel of Mark to describe the nature of the way Jesus would teach his disciples and to transmit his vision to them. Well, they had 25 miles from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi, where they wound up, back up even further into Gentile country, and it took them a whole day, approximately a day, to walk 25 miles. Take your time, you can walk 25 miles. If you don't get tired, your feet don't hurt, you can make it 25 miles in a day. It's kind of a nice, nice walk. And along the way, he would talk to them, and he would teach them, and he would share with them. He also worked miracles. He talked to people that you just don't talk to. You just don't talk to women, especially Gentile women. In John's Gospel, he chooses the Woman at the well, the Gentile woman at the well. You just don't talk to those kind of people, especially women who come to the well, a sacred well, not the common well, sacred well, after everybody else is gone. You see, in that, there's a beautiful phrase in this that Jesus must go through Samaria. He wasn't just wandering. He was going someplace to find someone. And in that task, we see a whole change take place in both the expectations and in the historical record of the nation of Israel. Their, 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 their goal was not to see the earth filled with everybody coming into Judaism. It was to be filled with Jewish people. They were the ones going to rule over the Gentiles through the Messiah. That was their expectation. Yet now Jesus is spending all His time up there with them. I don't know what the conversations might have been. Can you imagine what the evening conversations would be? What are we doing up here, man? You see the way those people are looking at us? You see the way that, you see the way they just hate us. And you know those dogs, that they, we have to be with these dogs? I mean, don't, of course, we don't think of the disciples that way. <laughs> Jesus called the Seraphonician woman a dog. He spit on people that were blind. You know, and the fact, there's another audience. There's, this, there's disciples, and there's, of course, the Gentiles, but there's also another audience, isn't there? And that started in Capernaum. They started the, he started being followed by the Pharisees. And we talked a little bit about this. I'm quickly trying, you see what I'm doing. I'm just trying to summarize quickly here, quickly, because we, we went through Advent, and so we're trying to catch up with all the details if we can. But he, he's also... Sees the Pharisees, and the way the Pharisaical thing worked is that you have the Pharisees that are in the temple, 
They're the ones that are, have the highest levels. They're the ones that are most righteous. They're also the ones that are the most dedicated, supposedly. They're also the ones that have all the... What? Money. You know, they got the most money. And then you have ranks of Pharisees that fall from that to important places. Capernaum was a fairly important city. And so you have Pharisees, and they then report to Jerusalem, but they stay among the people, and they stay among the people to encourage them, to build them up, to help them. Right? That would be what they'd say they're doing. What they're doing is they're taking names and sending them to Jerusalem. That's what they're doing. And they did this to Jesus, and they did this to his disciples, and then they follow him everywhere he goes. And it's, it's just a remarkable thing, isn't it? Last week we talked about the Pharisees that came to him. When did they come to him? After he had fed 4,000 people with some bread and a few small fish. Fed 4,000 people, and the first thing they asked him kind of like is, show us a sign. Now there's somebody who's really not on your side, you know what I mean? There's no sign ever like that sign. Except the one they did before. So as a result, we see this, this person that's among the Gentiles. And Mark doesn't just have one little pericope about this. He has one cameo after the next cameo after next cameo of this trip, just going over it one thing at a time. And this was something that the other apostles um, picked up on. In fact, we're gonna, in a minute, we're going to look at the uh, synoptic parallel just to get a, a sense of how uh, both Matthew and Luke looked at this. But as he's walking along this terrain, and it's a mixed terrain, it's, it's, it's a mixed terrain. Some places were flat, but most of the time it was hilly, and sometimes even mountainous, where they had to go through. If you have a topographical map in your, in your study Bible or available to you some way, you can see that there's a lot of, a lot of mountains, high hills that are in this way. That's how people transverse the area. They would then take longer to go place because they go around something. Couldn't just go straight to something because they, they could, I guess, if they want to scale that mountain up there or go over some high hill area, but they could, they found pathways around it. But all along the way, he'd be talking to his disciples. And so here, as he's going towards Caesarea Philippi, this unlikely place for any kind of proclamation of a Messiah with Jewish people, that Jesus turns to his disciples. And for some reason, for some reason, he just simply says, who do people say that I am? On the way, it says in verse 27. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? You know, what do you think about me? What do they think about me? What's, their, what's your read on what they think about me? You ever have anybody ask that kind of question? You know, if you have kids, you know, young children, teens, somewhere along the line they get around to, what do you think about me? You think I'm any good at something? You think, you think I'm smart? You think I'm pretty? I got two little daughters, you know, and they walk with daddy. Am I pretty? Am I, am I a pretty girl? Of course, it's kind of redundant. You know, you tell them from the time they can move, that, oh, you're beautiful, you're smartest, oh, you're in the high percentile, you know. You hear new parents, well, my kids, and I think, oh, here it comes. They're smart. They, they really test high on the scale. Oh, they're tall. And they're big. They're tall. And then 10 years later, they're like that tall, you know. 
Ours are kids. It's almost like a self-consumption kind of a question. But he asks his disciples, who do, you, who do people say that I am? Just kind of this general statement. Who do, peep, gen, uh, who do people say that I am? And so they replied. Now it's a, it's a they. It's not one person replies. Not, don't, one person doesn't have all the answers. But they, re, they replied, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. And still others say one of the prophets. Now in each of these categories you see John the Baptist Everyone knows he's dead. Even Herod made the statement about him that when he heard about Jesus' miracles, and you remember this, he wanted Jesus to come to him because he said he wanted to see him work a miracle. And then he made this statement kind of as an aside that this is John the Baptist raised from the dead. There's nobody ever is ever going to duplicate what John the Baptist did and the way John the Baptist was. And Herod had this very strong affinity for John the Baptist, even though he got caught in that trap and had to take his head and give it to someone on a platter. And then there's Elijah. Elijah. Boy, if you can be somebody, be Elijah. One of the greatest prophets. Elisha was a great prophet in his knowledge and his message. But Elijah did things like make axe heads float. Comes upon a person who had lost his axe in the water. I'm always doing near the water with an axe, but he, he's lost his axe in the water. And Elijah says, stand over there a minute. He goes, go out and pick it up. And an axe head's floating on the water. And he goes out and picks it up. Remember that? And little things like with the prophets of Baal. That's how you pronounce that, right? Baal. You say that? Baal. Say it out loud. Okay, it's, it's not Baal. And it definitely, if there's more than one, it's not Baals. Okay? It's Baal. <laughs> I, I, I had a New Te Old Testament class roaring over that one because um, the professor kept saying, and, and the Baals this and the Baals that and the Baals the other thing. I said, excuse me, doctor, whatever your name is. Um, I think you're mispronouncing that. He goes, oh, no, I'm not. I said, I'm positive you're mispronouncing that. I says, it's Baal, two A's, Baal. That's how you pronounce the Hebrew. You pronounce all the, all the consonants and syllables because they're, they're, they're breath marks down at the bottom. They're, uh, they're vowel marks. And, he, and he's listening to me kind of patiently. The whole class is listening to me kind of patiently. And I said, and definitely if you have more than one, it's not Baals. <laughs> and they, they go, ha, 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 ha. You know, it's like class is almost over. I almost had the whole day, you know. This is great. Now I've done it to you too, so um, quite sensitive about that. My family's not the Baals, Baals. <laughs> but Elijah, you know, he was a great prophet. He was the one that was supposed to rise again and usher in the Messiah. Be the forerunner, the Elijah, the one who comes before the Lord. And still others say you're one of the prophets. And I don't know if they postured, you know, put names out there, great prophets of, like Jeremiah and Isaiah and all these persons who were so effective with the prophecies they, well, Jeremiah wasn't all that effective. He was effective in getting people to try to kill him, but he wasn't getting anybody converted. But you see, one of the prophets, and so they're, they're putting, putting forth these thoughts and these statements. And then he makes the curious statement as if all of that was just to 
get them to kind of get into the conversation and commit themselves. And then he says, but what about you? What about you? Who do you say I am? There was a guy, and this is off the top of the head illustration here, so I hope it goes out well. There's this guy, and he's a great trapezist, trapeze, trapezist, and I don't need help, please. Make my own problems. And he's also a high wire expert. And for, went all over the world, stretching things between buildings, high places. He wound up at Niagara Falls, and he would put a wire across Niagara Falls, and this is about 1920s or something like that. And he's walking across with this thing, and he gets a you know, wheelbarrow out there, and he starts taking a wheelbarrow across, and he comes backwards across the Niagara Falls. He even takes a pig and puts it in this thing. He takes a pig across Niagara Falls, brings it back on the wire. And there's all these people cheering on both sides. So he got to the, one of the sides, and he said, he said, they're just going, no, he's just like worshiping the guy. He says, this is, he says, you can't, can you believe I can do that? And they said, that's incredible. He said, do you think I could actually take a person across like that? They said, yeah, we think you can take a person across like that. Who wants to get in? <laughs> him, 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 somebody else. <laughs> it's kind of like that here. He's drawing them in with one thing, and then he's you know, nailing them with the other. What do you think? Who do you say I am? And I don't think it's just that Peter is the, the big mouth in the group. But Peter answered him and said, you are the Messiah. Now at this point, it's important for us to see the synoptic parallels. The synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic means similar. So we know that there's a similarity in these texts. And so I'd like for us to turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 13 through 23. We'll read this rapidly. Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, Matthew 6, 13 through 23. He asked his disciples, who do, say, who do people say that I, the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and so others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Let's see, he adds Jeremiah there. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This is for our future reference here. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Lord, never, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now let's look at Luke chapter 9 and verse 18 through 22. Luke chapter 9, verse 18 through 22. 
Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. It does not include that rebuke portion like, like Matthew and Mark do. Gospel of John does not record this at all. Um, it does give a similarity in some of the later verses, but it's in the context of some other passages that he is highlighting. And so, as we see here in, in our gospel, it says, Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Now, you know, you've always heard Matthew's one. Thou, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's one you've always heard. Um, the Messiah, said, basically Matthew just extended it to give an explanation of what the word Messiah means. It's a de- like, very common um, literary tactic in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is you say something, and then you right after it, you, saw, you, you give a little tag to it, and it tells you what it means. Um, Abraham was on the mountain with Isaac, and it says, um, and he says, and God will provide a sacrifice, and then he goes on at the end of that, the end of that little narrative, say that he called that place Yahweh, because God saw he needed God, God provided, he saw and, and provided a sacrifice. The word Yireh, Jira, you know, Yireh simply means to see. To see in Hebrew. So it means to, I, he shall see. And so it's just a little, it's a little device that that's used all over and over again. So you see hard words and you wonder what they mean. But if you just look at what the, is the next phrase, typically the author will will give you the definition of that. And it's very similar here in that he is, Peter, or Mark has left out the idea of Messiah, but it doesn't take away from the power of what he's saying, Messiah. And it's simply Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him, verse 30, rather than the long explanation about, you know, kingdom of God and keys of the kingdom and so forth that, that um, were particular in Matthew's, Matthew's message. Then we get to verse 31, he said, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, the Son of Man must be killed, and that he, the Son of Man, um, would rise again after three days. Now, you think to yourself, that is a clear explanation of the gospel, isn't it? Remember Paul's explanation in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 and 2? He says, I, I leave with you that which is of most importance. Let's see if it sounds familiar. That Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The most important thing, he says, are those three elements. That he died, he was buried, and he rose again the third day. Now we see in the whole redemptive scheme, there's some other things that are there. He 
He ascends to heaven. He comes into a session and that He comes and is seated before the Father. He sits at the Father's right hand. He dispatches the Holy Spirit to go and to call His children, His sheep, His elect from the four winds of the earth. So we see, but just that simple three-point basic thing is exactly what Jesus is stressing right here to His, to his disciples. And even giving them a great deal of detail about what's going to happen and how it's going to happen. Who's going to do this? He's going to be rejected by Israel, by Judaism, by the chief elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. He's going to be rejected by these persons. Now, in the context of Judaism, if you lived in Israel and you were an Orthodox Jew, you didn't have some second option. If you got sick of the first Jewish synagogue of Capernaum, there was no second and third and fourth and ninth and twelfth and fifteenth and then another denomination. There was nothing else. It was that's it. Like in Corinth. If you didn't like Corinth, the church in Corinth, you couldn't go to the second church of Corinth. Couldn't. There was nothing else. So it's not just because of the time frame, it's because there's only one faith, one baptism, one hope at that point. It wasn't until all the people we disagree with came to life that I no, just kidding. We had many options. So as a result, we see this very clear and succinct explanation of what is going to happen to the Messiah. The one he calls the Messiah. By the person who says it, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of the living God. If you take all the synoptics together and, and make it into a harmony, you see, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, And then he says in verse 32, he spoke plainly about this, which is a statement that he expanded on it. He made sure they understood it. He made it clear. He continued to talk about it. He spoke plainly about it. This is not hard to see. Messiah is going to suffer, be rejected by Israel. He's going to be killed. He's going to rise again the third day. This is what's going to happen to the Messiah. This is what happened to me, the one you've identified as the Messiah. That's what's going to happen to him. That's important to emphasize that. Do you understand that that's what he, they said? You, now, just by that, do you think that they probably understood that? Huh? Well, of course they did, right? Of course they understood it. It was clear. It was plain. It was plain to them. Verse 32, it says, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> Jesus looked at his disciples. He turned and looked at his disciples. He took him aside, I said, but the disciples can hear this. I don't know how loud a rebuke is, but he was getting up in his face. This is never going to happen to you. After the Lord's Supper, he said, one of you is going to betray me. And basically Peter's you know, quick statement was, all these other dudes can, these other, these other losers can reject you, but I'll never reject you. Remember that? Who is it? Who is it? They're saying, who? You get to Peter, he says, I'm not one of them. Don't look at me. I'll never reject them. I'll never reject you, Lord. He said, I'll die before I reject you. And then, a few hours later, this little girl saying, aren't you one of those people? And he goes, no, never saw it. Never saw it. That's not me. <laughs> little girl. A servant girl. 
here we see this same man, now in an earlier context, rebuking Jesus. We see, the, again, the synoptic parallel, rebuking him sharply. And Jesus made some very interesting words to him. And these are not, these are not just incidental things. These aren't just unimportant things. It's very critical, very critical moment. Rebuked him and said, get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but, the, but merely human concerns. Well, there's several things we need to observe. The first one is Satan. The word for oppressor is Satan, Satan. Very likely, I think almost positively, Jesus wasn't thinking that Peter was Lucifer. He didn't have him confused with Lucifer, the prince of darkness, the ruler of the air, the power of the air that Jesus spoke about. The one that eventually Jesus put his complete emphasis on. Later it was Satan and Lucifer, overcoming the evil one, the accuser. But here it's a simple word that means Satan, or excuse me, oppressor. He looked at him and rebuked him and said, Get behind me, oppressor, one who comes against me, one who troubles me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God. Those aren't throwaway words. Those are important words. You don't have in mind. In other words, it's not in your thinking. You're not thinking right. You don't have it in your brain correctly. It's just, it's just incorrect what you're saying. He's not just saying, you said the wrong thing, you apologize right now, you know. He said, you don't have in your mind. It doesn't come to you. It could be any person alive. We don't have in our mind the things of God. We have in our minds the things of this world. You know that. Are you born as a spirit? Would you say you're one of those born-againers? Would you? Did you have things in mind of God before that time? And it's a very interesting thing because it's not just I reject it or I've laid that aside or I've chosen not to do that. A person who is in a reprobate state, a person who is unregenerate, a person who's not born again, it's not a matter of them just saying, well, I'm just, I, intellectually, I just don't like that. I, don't, I know that argument. I know that, and I've heard people say this. I've had people say this to me many times. I understand the whole thing, but I just don't want it, or I don't want to agree with it, something like that. You know, even, you know, the more modern thing is, I'm an agnostic, you know. What's that mean? That's a really fancy word. I'm agnostic. Say, whoa, boy, you know. So you're some high intellectual person, you know, that's examined everything. And, you know, you're just not convinced yet. No, it actually means something very simple. Without uh, ag knowledge, gnosis, agnosis. Without knowledge. In other words, I'm stupid. I don't have the capacity. I, it's, it's, it's out of my mind. I just don't have the ability to, be, to understand it. You're an agnostic. You're without knowledge. And that's exactly what Peter is. He is the first confessing agnostic right here on print. I was going to say on tape for a second. I know that wasn't true. On print. And so we, we're drawn to that, aren't we? 
How do we then respond to this? How do we have our mind on things of God and not on things of the earth or human concerns? How do we minister to people? How do we reach out to people? I think it's of note to see a couple scriptures together. And let's carefully read these. John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And I will raise them up at the last day. And then verse 65, the same sequence of verses. He said, he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. I notice the language specifically. No one can come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Only the Father can draw a person. No one can come to Him. All you got to do is just be born again. I, and I've heard people mistakenly say things like, well, I, was, I led them to the Lord. You know, I led them to Christ. Um, people say, He led me to Christ. Well, if He was preaching the Gospel, He was participating in it. But in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, where we're ambassadors for Christ, it particularly says to us that we, it says, as if we are His mouthpiece. As if we're helping. So we hear the Gospel through a human vessel. A human vessel that can't come to faith, according to Romans chapter 10, unless they have the Word preached to them. In the presence of the Word, the Holy Spirit works in that person's life and in their heart and literally wakens them from death. Wakes them up out of death and delivers them from a kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Without a single contribution by any human person, include the person who's doing it. Let's just keep on looking a moment. That's a lot of words, Pastor. First John chapter nine, verse thirteen. That's in the Bible, right? First John chapter one, verse nine through thirteen. That's in the Bible, right? Yeah. Okay. Verse nine. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Who's that? Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He was in the world. And though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize Him. He came to that which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. And we ask ourselves, why didn't they receive Him? No one can come to the Father unless He draws them. It's not because they're hard-hearted. It's not because they don't like God. It's because they got, they're in sin. They may, all those things may be true, but one of the reasons they don't receive Him, and probably the most important one, is that they can't receive Him. You can't just receive Jesus. You can't follow Jesus. 
You know, all you got to do is follow Jesus. All you got to do is read the Bible. All you do is got to stop sinning. All you got to do is stop doing whatever you know, vice you do. All you got to do is stop being with those kind of people. All you got to do is start being with these other kind of people. And, you know, we get this gospel that's basically don't and do. All the things you don't do and all the things you do do. That's about what it is, too. Total combination. But the person's not coming to Christ because they don't want to or they choose not to. They, they can't. We should remember that. That God's the one that gets glory from first to last. That's what grace means, right? Grace isn't I go up to here and I, he takes me this far and I do the rest. It's all him. It's all him from first to last. And Paul makes that crystal clear in Ephesians chapter 2. I hear, I hear so many people say, I just love Ephesians. Oh, it's my favorite book in the whole Bible. My favorite book in the whole Bible. I said, me too. Let's read the second chapter. After you look at it closely, I've had people say, well, that, that, that's, that needs further interpretation. <laughs> you know, until you, you change it, right? So it comes from something else. He says in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. And then you see this curious thing in English, it's a slash. In Hebrew language, it's, an, it's, it's, an, it's highlighting or diminishing what's come before it. It is by grace you have been saved. Where am I at? It is by grace you have been saved. In verse 6, and God, grace, it's grace, unmerited favor. Still doesn't tell us about the process as much, but he goes on. He says, And God raised up with Christ and raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, as we heard before, through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God. This is not from yourself. Why? Because no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. It's not that I reject him. I've rejected him by my nature. Nothing changes if, if you have a non-Christian person, a person who's not born again, and you share the Gospel and they reject it. Nothing happens. They still are reprobate. They're still on the same direction they were before. They haven't changed speed or course at all. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. 
God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, further examination of John chapter 1, verse 9 through 13, and verse 12, it says, Yet to all who did receive him, to them who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, slash children born, how? Not of natural descent. Not because of your genealogical descent. Nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And Jesus says to Peter, when he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, he said, This is not you. This is not you saying these things. This is God speaking in you. This is God's work in you. We never get to the place where we can say, I'm so glad I chose Jesus. You, if that's your gospel, you've got a pretty frail gospel because if you can choose Him, you can reject Him. He, on the other hand, says, My sheep hear My voice. They come to Me. I give them eternal life. And they're never going to be taken out of My hands. No one can take them out of My clutches. And the Father, who's the other source of... Of course, they're one, but He is the source of authority. No one's going to take them out of His hands either. Because the Father and I are one. Now, which one's a secure place and which one is an insecure place? An unsecure place. I was, I was, I had a strange night last night. I went to bed pretty early, set my clock for six like I normally do on Sundays. It went off at six. Okay. I looked at it, turned it off. Got up, slowly, went into the bathroom and Turned on the shower, got in the shower, and two hours later, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> got in the shower, I normally do, and this is first moments of the day. This is, this is not just science, every day, kind of finding out is, it, is the world still as it was? You know, am I really saved? You know, you know all those same questions you kind of wake up with. You're a bad person, you're a failure, blah, 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 blah. You kind of have to get the mind of God, and so you're waiting in the shower, like, I get to, had a real nice shower this morning. Brush my teeth, shaved in the shower. You should have seen, no, never mind. It was a nice shower. Get out of the shower, towel off, put on all the stuff you put on, deodorant, aftershave, sunblock, the you know, old man's skin, you know. Got it all, take my time. Then I uh, go to the mirror, look in the mirror, get my hair combed, and there's this little clock right up on the side of our bathroom, inside the bathroom on the wall. I go, what? It's 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> so, um, but you know, it's, a, it's a battery-operated clock, obviously, right? So, and so I very quickly went out to get my cell phone to prove that, you know, I'm not crazy. I'm kind of crazy person would do this on my cell phone. You, you, know, you push it one time, you know, I push it one time, and the big it wasn't two. It wasn't two thirty. It was two twenty. 
And by this time, my ill wife, who has this, I hope it's not flu, but she's sick. From this under, <laughs> do you know what time it is? <laughs> I said, I, I didn't a little while ago, but I do now. And I mean, I am dressed, I'm half dressed, ready to go. And so I said, well, you know, this, I'm just going to get right back in bed. And then she's kind of, you know, Karen's kind of interesting. You get out of, I get out of bed and she, let's just say this is the bed and she's over here. She kind of vacates that and she kind of is sleeping something like this. So now, if you want to get back in bed, you see a sleeping person, you've got to actually wake them up to get back in the bed with them. So I said, well, you know, it's, it's only 2.20. <laughs> I'm already ready for church, you know. I think I'll go down and just... Uh, Maybe I'll just sit and, you know, read my Bible or something, you know. And the more I did that, the more I realized this is not a good idea. And then I just had this, this kind of a moment with the Lord before I fell back asleep for an hour and a half on the downstairs bed. And it, I was, I was very troubled you know, when, when we, we take the scriptures like this and we teach these scriptures, it, it almost appears that we have some kind of an agenda to turn against a tide. And it's an old tide. It's a tide that goes something like this, that God, I remember the first time I was a young boy, heard about the gospel. And my mother was describing it to somebody else. And I didn't really know what a check was. I really know what a check was, but she said to the person, here's how it works. God has written a check out to you. And he, on this check, it says that the, what you're receiving is eternal life. It's a check. It's made out to you. And he gives you this check. He holds it out to you like this and says, do you want this check? And you then have to take that check. Now, this is a lot of this retrospect. I probably don't remember this part when I was little, but I know it now. Smart now. I know what money is now. Turn it over, and you have to put your signature down on it. And then you take it to a bank, and you cash it in. You've got eternal life, right? You go to church, and you've got eternal life, I guess. You know? Is that familiar to anybody? I think it's familiar to everybody that's ever, well, there's a lot of people very familiar with it. Then you start reading things like, well, what is the condition of this person who has a check being written out to them? What is their condition? They're dead. And they're dead in their transgressions and sin. The case is settled. In fact, Scripture says they're enemies with God. And that God's, we read this morning, the wrath of God is upon this person, and there's no peace with God. Hope I'm not irritating you yet. Because we're all quite familiar with this, I suppose, by this time. But this is something that irritates people, and they start doing things like calling you a heretic and saying, you're not preaching the gospel because as many as received him, whosoever will. That's what the Bible says. Well, I don't know where the Bible says whosoever will. Even when they turn to it, it doesn't say it. But as many as received him, and they say, as many as will. It's my will. 
And we have this doctrine that springs powerfully out of that text. It says everybody's got a free choice. Everybody's got a free will. A free will? Are you kidding me? We're dead. Not as much luck going down to the Rockville Cemetery. Just get in one of those graves and start telling those people, rise up out of there. All you got to do is just get out of that hole. Just throw that dirt off. Get out of that hole. But there's a tension in this doctrine. And the tension is, do I have it right? Is this what the Scripture teaches me? Is this what the Bible teaches me? I remember when I first heard this, First, I was just convinced the person was kind of half nuts, you know. This is, this is nothing about, this has nothing to do with the Bible. What you're just making stuff up off the top of your head. Until we started saying, well, let's go look at the Bible. So you look at these verses. I mean, do you look at those verses, right? Did I embellish them? Did I change the words? Did, you know, something like that. And so you start having this experience that takes place. And you say, that's the message of the Bible? I thought I had to choose. I thought I had, it was my will. I thought I had the ability to reject Christ. Well, you do have the ability to reject Christ. In fact, that's all you have before you're a Christian. So, I don't want to turn this completely into this, but in John chapter 15, or 316, for God so loved the world, gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall have eternal life. And he goes on to say that the person who rejects him they just continue on the same way they were. It doesn't change them. It's the day of accountability is something we use to try to put people in charge of their salvation. Walking down an aisle, you charge your salvation. While we're telling them that Jesus died for their sins, and they're, you know what, how bad they are, you can forgive their sins, and how do you, you just come down the aisle, and you walk down the aisle. Now, I walked down an aisle when I was seven years old. Some of you walk down the aisle. Some, and I, the testimony that I hear is it worked with some people. But I walked down the aisle seven years old, and by the time I got to be 15 years old, and I learned what basketball was, and I learned what sports was, what girls were, I mean, real girls, you know what I mean? I learned these things. I drifted. I became this Barney and Elizabeth son who is a Christian until I completely came outside of that context. And I was not in the covenantal context. I wasn't a covenantal person. I just turned to the world. It's not like I didn't think about God once in a while. I used to make this prayer. God, let me think about you more than I did today. And forgive me my sins, and let me think about you more than I did today. And about three days later, I'd pray the same prayer. After a while, I just stopped praying that prayer. But I was convinced that it was choosing him, turning over the new leaf, following Jesus. And it seemed like the, everybody said that's what the Bible teaches. Until I found out one day it has nothing to do with what you do. It has to do with what God does. It has to do with what he chooses. Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you and ordains you to bear fruit, and fruit that would last. Until one day, and I would say I was probably at the height of my stubborn, depressed rebellion against the Lord. I just, forget that garbage. Looking for other stuff in the world to satisfy. And 
I was rescued. I was rescued. I was awakened. And I didn't even know I was dead. But the contrast in just moments between where I was and where I wound up was a contrast of a whole world. It's like being transported from one place. Oh, that's right. That's what the Bible says, right? He transports us from the kingdom of darkness and death and ourselves our nature's fallen, and He transports us into the kingdom as dear Son. This is what Jesus has come to do. We see it with this, this Seraphonician woman. First of all, we see it with a woman with the issue of blood in Mark's Gospel. Remember? She thinks this is just a magician. She thinks this is the guy that's got the healing robe. It seemed to be the thing on Him that seemed to be the most you know, interesting. The, the seamless robe they talked about. And she says, if I can just touch that, then I'll, my, my child will be healed. When she goes up, she senses some kind of power in it. Jesus turns to her because he sees it, and he blesses this Gentile person by acknowledging her worth to him. I'm feeding the, quote, children's bread to the children who are now Gentiles also. You see it with the woman of the issue of blood. You see it with the seraphim. I mixed, mixed those, didn't I? The woman with the issue of blood. She touched me. The Seraphonician woman, you know, she was healed. Or she, she, her, her daughter was healed by Jesus. And you see the, 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 the man with the, the hand. and You see it over and over and over again throughout this Gentile excursion. You think to yourself, what's he looking for? He's looking for his people. Where there is no Jew, nor Gentile, slave, nor free, male, nor female. And the Apostle Paul takes this thing in the book of Galatians and expounds upon it. Expounds upon these things the same way we're expounding here on this small statement of Peter. It's kind of like he, he said the right thing, though, right? <laughs> my mother, I love my mother. She's so fantastic. But I remember sitting there watching some show. And, you know, Bonanza, you know, one thing about Bonanza. And that Chung Mao Lee or whatever his name was, their cook would bring in the dinner and they would all just kind of. She goes, oh, they're Christians. Oh, it's a Christian show. <laughs> you know, looking for something to verify. These are Christians, man. These are Christians. <laughs> what makes a Christian? Christian parents? Christian context? The Holy Spirit awakening us. And he awakens us to belief. Do I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins according to the Scripture. Do I believe that? Do I believe He was buried? Do I believe He rose from the dead? If you confess with your mouth, the Scripture says, that Jesus is Lord. No other God, no other King, no other Master but Jesus. He, he is Lord and that he was risen from the dead is a sign to you of salvation, belief. He loved the world, and he drew out of it those who believe. They couldn't believe on their own. He infused this faith into them to believe. And from first to last, our statement is, Jesus saves me. 
came to seek and to save that that was lost. And so our challenge and our admonition is not that you show us all the good things you do and all the things you and, and say, I'm sorry for the things I don't do. The question is belief. Do you believe? Let me tell you something. There's segments in our society. They don't believe because they really do believe they should go to hell because of things they've done. They really believe they shouldn't be forgiven by God because of what they've done. This was a huge transition for me. I'm thinking, you know, the way you share the gospel with somebody, the way they respond is, you know, you convince them or show them that God has forgiven every sin. And I had people walk around to me and say, I'm a wicked man. I'm a violent man. I've done things that I don't forgive me for. How could God forgive me? So the gospel is moot. It doesn't matter. You know, God can't forgive me. I don't want to be forgiven by God. I should be punished. I used to go, well, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, let's see how that works. Of course God can forgive your sins. You know, just exactly what is it you've done? You go, whoa. Tony Campolo, you know, he says, everybody can be forgiven. And they say, what you've done? He said, well, maybe you're one of them you can't. So your tactic changes. You say, what do you say to a person who has that mentality? And it's everybody's mentality. Person who doesn't care, who's a non-believer, they've taken that status because it keeps them in position of control. I don't have to deal with the reality. I deal with the control to keep from the reality. And we think that our evidence is a changed life. You know, we're sanctified. You know, talk about sanctification, sanctification. Everyone's talking about sanctification. The evidence of this faith. And everything is all evidenced by, you know, good works. All these kind of things. So we just dismiss anybody that's outside those categories. The Lord awakens those who are His own. There's ways people can get to that, but that's the reality. He awakens those for whom He died. And as a result... When we consider ourselves, my consideration is not, you know, I wish I could be a better person, and you know, maybe I should do this or that or the other thing. We, it just, it's, just, it's, just, it's just natural. It's our nature that cries out. It's about you. It's about what you do and what you decide. And how you. It's not about any of that. That's all settled. Who we are is all settled. We are reprobate. We are enemies of God. We have no peace with God. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. They've rejected Him. All these things have rejected Him. And they lead others to reject Him as well. And so then the issue is not convince somebody that their sins, no matter how they are, can be convinced. It's to ask them a simple question. And I remember the first time I did this with somebody, I said, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, I got it, I got it. I said, but just, just, let's just put that over here a second. I said, do you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? Do you believe that he is the God-man? This is a fairly studied person that I was talking to. He said, yes, I believe that's what the Bible teaches. I do believe that. Hmm. Do you believe that he died and rose from the dead? He said, yes, I do deeply believe that. I'll never not believe that. 
And I turned in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. I said, you're saved, man. You're saved. He goes, what? what? Literally, it's like he jumped on that thing and held on to it every limb of his body. That's what it is? Yeah. You start singing the scriptures. For God so loved the world that gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, whosoever will believe in him. Okay, will. Can, will. Take whatever way you like it. No one can or will unless the Father is the one who does this work in their life. And ladies and gentlemen, you, you know this. We, this isn't the first time we've talked about that kind of thing. And people just walk straight out that door and think that place is messed up. Especially that guy up front that talks too much. And I ask the question, I don't ask the question, what do you think the Bible says? I say, what does the Bible teach? What does the Bible teach? Are we obligated to believe the Bible or just believe whatever we feel is right? Because the one leads to our Savior, the other leads to a version of our Savior that I like. And so as we come to this text, this just springs out of this text. Peter, one minute he's saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Next minute he's saying, I'm not going to let anybody kill you, Jesus. He didn't hear about the resurrection part, did he? Just, someone's trying to kill you. No one's killing you. I'm around. And he even lost it in the garden and went with that same thing. And he was radically changed. I had a text in John where he's, let's go fishing, he says, and he's out in the boat and Jesus is cooking a you know, fish on the shore. Here they're coming back in, and they're in fairly shallow water, and Peter is looking over there, and he sees Jesus, and John's right next to him. That's the Lord. What does he do? He dives into the water, clawing at it to get to the Savior. Because all he remembers is denying him three times, running away. come to find this whole new criteria for relationship. It's not in how I love God. It's how God loves me. It's not how I serve God. It's how God has served me. It's not if I choose God. It's if God chooses me. It brings us into a surety and a powerful position of thanksgiving and praise. I mean, just, just the words we mention on a Morning worship. Just grip our heart with thanksgiving and praise and adoration for the one who rescued us and says to us, I'm your salvation. I'm your salvation. What words to hear. Think about that. For that is the waters of eternal life.